This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Warning, the following podcast has some foul language. You may wish to earmuff the impressionable. Hi, it's Mike, and this is the Saturday show. Well, I mean, you know it's Mike. It is Saturday. This is a show. You could have, as they say, done the math, but I've seen our national math scores. Maybe you couldn't. You're a gist listener. You definitely could. You're 80th percentile above on the standardized tests, even though there's an 80% chance you eschew the validity of standardized tests. Actually correlates how well you may have done on the standardized tests. So over the years on The Gist, this program, which is airing on a Saturday or wherever you may be listening to it, there are themes that I come back to time and again, themes like free speech and productive dialogue, words, puns. There are topics, I would say politics is the biggest one. In terms of policy, guns and gun crime, probably the topic, the policy area I've talked about the most. And one of the best interviews I've ever done is going to be the one from the archives we play now. It's with Richard Aborn, who is the president of the Citizens Crime Commission of New York City. But more than that, he goes back in the district attorney's office. He helped past mayors set up the 311 system. And he was there and in our talk talks about how through rules and policies, we in New York City came to live in an extremely safe environment when it comes to guns. Less safe than when I talked to Mr. Aborn four years ago, but safer than the nation as a whole. And as you heard in my, my talk recently with Jonathan Metzl, this could all be endangered depending on Supreme Court rulings, but I bring you this interview so you understand history and context. And then afterward, we will play the spiel that I issued, delivered on Monday, first reacting to the shooting in Buffalo. But first, this is Richard Aborn, originally aired more than four years ago. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
So I've said over and over on this show that I feel lucky, I feel blessed, if you will. I reassure my children when they're ever frightened about gun shootings. I don't tell them, don't worry, we'll be safe. But the point I make is we're extremely lucky that we live in New York City. In New York City, with its fewer than 300 murders last year, we are safer statistically than a randomly selected place in the United States. Not a lot of people know that. And the gun crime and gun death level is so low that my children find this reassuring. I don't know why national politicians don't. Maybe they don't want to. Whenever gun control is brought up, they say, look at Chicago. I have said, well, look at New York. But how did New York City get here? Joining me now is Richard Aborn, who's president of the Citizens Crime Commission of New York City, was the president of Handgun Control, Inc., now the Brady campaign from 92 to 96. Guess what happened right in the middle of that period? The assault weapons ban was passed. He had a hand in that. Hello, Richard Aborn. Thanks for thanks for joining me. Totally my pleasure. Happy to be here. Okay, let's talk about guns. If I want to get a handgun in New York City, it's not impossible, but how would I go about doing it? It's not impossible, um, but it's tough, and it's and it's designed to be tough. So New York City and New York State, if I may, have had perhaps the most effective gun control law in the history of the country since 1911 when the Sullivan Law was passed. And the notion was that before New Yorkers got a gun, there'd be a thorough inquiry into their background and the reason why they wanted to have the gun, what the gun would be, and to make sure the government knew uh, who was buying the gun and, where, and from where they were buying it. Uh, most of the state goes through the court systems to impose the Sullivan Law. New York City, from the grant of the legislature, actually uses the NYPD. So to get a gun in New York, and I, I won't distinguish for our purposes between handgun and long gun. They're slightly different. But, yeah. but the, the main thrust is you got to be willing to expose yourself to a fairly rigorous six-month process where you have to make an application, fill out the form, go through a background check, go through some screening, get some safety training, state which gun you want to buy, state where you're going to buy it from, and then once you do all that, come in for an interview. Mm -hmm. And the purpose is not to prevent law abiding. And who's doing the interview? The, the NYPD officer. A man in, bl a man in blue. A, man a in uniformed blue. officer. It's a uniformed right. officer, yeah, exactly. Um, and the purpose is not to prevent law-abiding citizens from getting guns. The purpose is to make sure that criminals don't get guns. This is a, I was a homicide DA in this town for many, many years. I went to far too many homicides and saw there was a gun. Yeah. That was the instrumentality of death. What years? I was there from uh, 78 to 84. 84. Yeah. So and it was bad. I, it peaked in about 91, 92, but things started getting really, really bad. bad. It was really bad in New York then. There's yeah. Much, there's a renaissance city. But the goal was not to keep law-abiding citizens from getting a gun, but rather to make sure that criminals didn't get a gun. And guess what? It works. Yeah. It works. So what does the NYPD and New York City do to assess mental illness? What's so their threshold? So we're, we're looking to see whether or not you've had some involvement with the mental health system, mm -hmm. either with a doctor or a psychiatrist. Maybe you've been in a mental health institution. Maybe you've had outpatient treatment. Maybe you've got a history of mental health-related uh, interactions with the police department, that's easy to determine. Yeah. Maybe there have been domestic calls about you that indicate some sort of mental instability. There are lots of ways to do it. That's why cops do this. They're investigators. Would one call or two calls automatically disqualify so, you? No, because you don't know what the call is. Right. You don't know the substance. Would being on Prozac or antidepressant? No, 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 no. no, no. You're going to have to show some erratic signs. Yeah. No, because lots of people, you know, men, listen, mental illness is a a vastly misunderstood 
disease. Many, many people have it in one form or another. As an aside, there's an enormous intersection between mental illness and criminal offending. We're doing a lot of work yeah. around that, trying to tease that out. No, the cops have got to make an assessment. And that's why you have cops doing this. They're making that assessment. In, in different states, in different municipalities, nationally, there's a background check, but a background check can mean a lot of things. So what sort of questions might the officer be asking you, or even before you get to sit down with him, what sort of things are they looking at? So they go through the basic background check, which is a nationwide check at this point. They so have, Brady, everyone has to do the that. The Brady yeah. background check, which we passed right before we passed the ban on assault weapons. And that essentially makes sure that you're in compliance with federal law, specifically the 1968 Gun Control Act. And that act says that if you are a convicted felon, a fugitive from the, gov- from the government, from justice, from the court system, um, adjudicated a habitual drug user, adjudicated mentally incompetent, or AWOL from the Army, you mm-hmm. cannot purchase a gun. That's 2 million people who had a background that prohibited them from having a gun that were stopped because of Brady. When you have a gun in New York City, what are the rules about keeping it, storing it, maintaining it? I believe in New York City, there's some differences in the states. I believe in New York City, you have to keep it locked up. Um, One thing we strongly advocate, and we've actually worked on legislation, is that if you are a lawful gun owner, even if you're an unlawful gun owner, frankly, keep that gun locked up and keep the ammunition away from it. Now, intuitively, you may say, well, that renders it useless for a self-defense tool. But the reality is you don't want to wake up at 3 in the morning because you hear a noise, pull your gun, and shoot. I will tell you horrifically tragic stories of parents killing their kids returning early from college. Yeah. Just horrendous stories. A kid making noise in the middle of the night because he's up, and the father hears it, grabs his gun, and shoots, and the kid gets killed. Or a 5-year-old brother shooting his 4-year-old brother because they found their mother's gun, and they shot it. Give yourself the 30 seconds or a minute to wake up gather your senses, get the lights on, analyze what's going on, and then make your decision to take out your gun. So we strongly advocate what we call safe storage laws. And they've, had, they've been tremendously impactful in stopping teenagers from committing suicide and cutting down these, these awful, tragic shootings that I'm talking about. And that should be nationwide. Yeah, I think uh, 10 states have done it now. Not New York yet. We're getting there. We're almost there. Um, it's, it's close. But we should do that everywhere. How does a good, good, safe law. How do New York's gun laws affect suicide in New York? Quite a bit, because it's harder to get a gun in New York. We still have gun suicides. They tend not to be in the urban areas. They tend to be in the rural areas, because you have more gun possession, more rifle possession in the rural areas. Um, But people say, uh, if you're going to commit suicide, you're going to commit suicide. But that's not true. It is absolutely not true. So here's why it's not true. I mean, this, this becomes macabre, but the act of suicide... Is, is obviously an horrendous act that is often impetuous, particularly with kids. I don't know how old your kids are, but you know they're impetuous. Mm-hmm. And when they become teenagers, put on your seatbelt, mm-hmm. they'll, be they'll be more impetuous. Um, if you give an impetuous kid who's high, in a highly emotional, depressed state a weapon, and they put that gun up and they pull the trigger, it's done. There's no taking that bullet back. They cut themselves, they take pills... They go in the garage. All those things take time, and it gives people time to reflect on what they've done and change their behavior. Not with a gun. Chicago is always brought up as a city that supposedly has very strict gun laws. Of course, they have a huge murder problem. Are the, are the gun laws as strict as New York's? Yes, and in some ways even stricter. But herein lies the rub. Chicago, the city of Chicago, has very strong gun control laws. The problem is Chicago is surrounded by cities and towns that don't, 
and is surrounded by states that have virtually none. Yeah. So there's like Indiana. At, Gary, Indiana is an hour away. And, uh, yeah, just about. Yeah, yeah exactly. Ninety minutes. And away. and you just you just get outside of Chicago. Right. And people are. It's just super easy to get guns. You don't even have to drive down to Virginia as you do from from New York. That's their problem out there. The second problem, and this I know is a bit controversial, but there's very little penalty to pay in Chicago and in Illinois for carrying an illegal gun. In New York, you pay a severe penalty for carrying an illegal gun. You look at a substantial time, and we can debate whether or not jail is appropriate or not. Um, in my view, jail is not appropriate for many, many offenses. I ran for district attorney in this town, and I actually said jail should not be being used in many offenses. In fact, we're not now. But when you make the decision to pick up an illegal gun, you are one step away from a shooting or a murder. Yeah. And we need to take that seriously. So Chicago, it's different. In Chicago, there's slap-on-the-wrist uh, penalties for guns? They, yeah, they, well... There's not a lot of jail time. They get probation. They get diversions. Yeah. And and I fully embrace the idea of helping young people avoid lives of crime. I've spent a good part of my career, and the work we do at the Crime Commission is all about thinking about how you prevent crimes from happening and how you steer people off the criminal pathway. But we do have to make decisions in society. And jail is, unfortunately, an appropriate response for someone that carries an illegal gun. Because guess what? If you get into a fight and you don't have that gun, yeah. you may get into a fist fight, you may even beat up the guy you're fighting with, but you're not going to kill him. But that gun is so impersonal and so fast and so impetuous that that shooting is over often before a kid realizes it. This is all behavioral economics, right? People are not going to engage in behavior if they think the outcome of the behavior is too risky. So when you think you, if you're going to get uh, arrested with an illegal gun, you're going to be looking at state time. We're looking at one to three years. Chances are you're not going to do it. There's an important Supreme Court case about uh, gun ownership. I mean, a few, but Heller was one. The court weighed in. This was a D.C. case and said that some oh, local, I know it well. Yeah. yeah, some local laws wouldn't apply. But then Antonin Scalia had a notation essentially saying, yes, but some gun laws could apply. So what Heller said and what and Scalia wrote the decision was actually a little more expansive. And the expansiveness is important. The Heller case found for the first time in constitutional jurisprudence in the U.S. that there was some sort of individual right under the Second Amendment to own a gun. The court said Americans do have a right to own a gun in the home for self-defense, and it should be a handgun. Mm -hmm. The court also said that the ability to possess a gun is subject to local law, local rules, as long as those rules aren't designed to prevent people from having a gun in the home. In other words, the rules can't be so onerous mm -hmm. that nobody can get them. The decision also said that highly dangerous weapons, i.e. assault weapons, can be absolutely banned under the Second Amendment. So the, the decision, which is touted by the NRA, is saying, well, everybody has the right to have a gun, is very carefully tailored, very narrowly tailored to a gun in the home for self-defense, and the, and the case explicitly allows us to ban assault weapons, which we really need to do if we're going to go after this mass shooting phenomenon. I mean, we really need to stop this nonsense in America and, and put out crumbs to people, like raising the age to 21. We just we took a quick look the other day when Trump said this. Yeah, Essentially, yeah. the last 80 mass shootings, or mass shooters in mass shootings, I think six were under 21, and none of them had bought the gun. I mean, one, Cruz, yeah. bought the gun. It's crazy, you know, but... People don't know the data, and they say, oh, that's great. We'll just do that, and they'll take care of the problem. It won't take care of the problem. Well, we want to stop the last problem, or Trump does. I mean, that's the attention span. 
Yeah, as of, yeah, as of, as of uh, Monday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who knows yeah, what he's yeah. going to say on, on Tuesday? Yeah. Um, so that's problem. So we need to get serious. We know there's a direct correlation between the effectiveness of the assault weapon ban and the ban on large magazines and mass shootings. I'll tell you the data. The data is, is crystal clear. In the 10 years that occurred before the ban was in effect, there were 50% more mass shootings than during the 10 year that the ban was in effect. And in the now 12 or 13 years, after the ban has been repealed by the Republicans, there have been 550% more incidents. However, it is true that a very small percentage of gun murders are rifle or long gun or assault rifle murders. But on the other hand, of the other hand, it's still hundreds of dead people a year. So the NRA, when we were battling this out on the Hill, the NRA would always testify or, or do shows with me, and they say, well, you know, um, there are, haven't, haven't been that many people killed with assault weapons compared to the total number of people being killed. So I will ask you what I ask them all the time. You tell me the quota. You tell me how many people have to die yeah. before we do something we know that will save those lives. Yeah. And then, by the way, you go tell their families that, well, you know, there just weren't enough people killed. We, and I can understand that saying that or thinking it's a good talking point from the end of the assault weapons ban for a decade, which is, say, from like 04 to 15, then Pulse, then Vegas, then Parkland. Before that, the one in Texas. It's be, it's being less true. Like, not only is the point no, that, that that's true too, one is too overall many. Overall, crime's coming down. But also, is less actually. true. Right. right. Yeah, actually, I should run that data again. You're right. Overall, murders are coming down in the United States. And one of my big points is... Even if we do a fix that doesn't address 97% of the problem, if 15,000 people are killed by guns, 3% of that is 450 more living people. I take that. That's pretty good, right? And the second thing is we live in a democracy. This infuriates most people. If you can't give a fix, even if it's a small fix, but if you can't get a fix for something that people are passionate about, it really undermines our faith in all our institutions. 100%. And, and that has its own impact. So in my view, just because we can't do everything doesn't mean we shouldn't do everything we can. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and to quote or paraphrase Voltaire, we should never let the perfect chase out the good. Because to, to follow this argument that not a single gun control law has stopped all murders yeah. is to say to me then we shouldn't have laws against murder, against rape, against child trafficking. You're never going to stop everything. We live in a system of laws. That's how we try and control illegal behaviors. And to the point of this show, we've been wildly successful in New York and using the various attributes of law, building respect for the rule of law, using police effectively in an open and transparent way, in driving down crime to historic lows. And now we are not only the safest big city, we're the safest city in America. Which is what, over 250,000 Over 200, yeah, over two, yeah, a quarter million. Yeah. Wow, wow. Yeah. I mean, think I, about that. I heard maybe Riverside, but that's a county, yeah. I'll take it, but it's a county. <laughs> I'll, I'll take the law, so we're the second. Richard Aborn is the president of the Citizens Crime Commission of New York City, and he uh, ran what's now the Brady campaign for five years. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Happy to be with you. And now the spiel. In the aftermath of the horrific mass shooting in a supermarket in Buffalo, New York, we as a culture convene 
to ask questions. What caused this and what can be done? This exercise has taken on a ritualistic cant as the answers are always familiar with slight variations depending on the circumstance of the last incident. In this case, as suggested by New York Governor Kathy Hochul, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, and other elected officials surveyed, there were three causes, guns, hate, and the internet. As far as the internet, yes, the shooter had been radicalized, had his head filled with white supremacy and replacement theory via the internet. And why the internet? Because that's where all information is, especially if you're an 18-year-old who was kept from actual interactions via the pandemic. Addressing this part of the equation was New York Governor Hochul on Face the Nation. I'm calling on social media platforms to be making sure that they're doing a better job monitoring the hate speech that's out there, especially when it's directed against populations and comes on the guise of white supremacy terrorism, which is exactly what happened here in Buffalo. The problem with this part of the problem is that the social media platforms who would be at all receptive to working with the government already are. The shooter live streamed on Twitch. The Amazon-owned site took the footage down almost immediately. The shooter had a private chat room on Discord, which is like having a private phone conversation, the monitoring of which invites serious legal complications. Finally, the shooter was influenced by 4chan, which operates outside of the reach and jurisdiction of the United States. The founder of 4chan, no longer with the site, does want it shut down. But even if that happened, he acknowledges it will likely mutate into something else. 4chan itself, the locus of the shooter's radicalization, has already spawned a more virulent offspring, 8chan, which is now 8kun. In short, it is true that shooters often use the internet to get ideas, to get angry, and to get inspired. There's no real solution for that. Well, what about the idea that white supremacy is largely to blame? That certainly seems backed up by FBI Director Christopher Wray's testimony before Congress. Racially motivated violent extremism, specifically of the sort that advocates for the superiority of the white race, uh, is a persistent, evolving threat. It's the biggest chunk of our racially motivated violent extremism cases, for sure. Uh, and, and, and racially motivated violent extremism is the biggest chunk of our domestic terrorism portfolio, if you will, overall. I will also say that the same group of people we're talking about have been responsible for uh, the most lethal attacks uh, over the last, uh, say, decade. Domestic terrorism doesn't actually exist in the penal code, but what Ray is saying is that if it did, white supremacists would be a larger threat today than even Muslim extremists. This is slightly different from how Chuck Todd framed things on Meet the Press. It was the latest in recent mass shootings aimed at ethnic groups. Charleston, South Carolina, African Americans in church, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Jewish victims in a synagogue, El Paso, Texas, Latino victims at a Walmart. And now we add Buffalo, New York to the list. Those shootings were all horrific and extremely deadly. The ones Chuck Todd just named are listed as three of the 20 deadliest mass shootings in U.S. history by The Violence Project. The Violence Project keeps what I regard as the authoritative database of mass shootings. They define the crime as one that kills at least four victims other than the shooter. This matches the FBI definition, which is arbitrary, yes, but I also think it gets at what we think of when we think of mass shootings. The kind that inspire the correct sentiment that these kinds of shootings don't routinely take place anywhere else in the developed world. 
They're the ones that grab national attention and dictate coverage, soul-searching, and if I'm going to be unsentimental, the never-ending national conversation about what can be done. However, if we're going to correctly name the problem, let's correctly name the problem. White supremacy is an insidious and seemingly metastasizing problem for our society. You heard the FBI director. Mass shootings are a horribly disturbing phenomenon. And while the problem of white supremacy obviously intersects with the problem of mass shootings, it's not the driver. It's not the main cause. It is more the exception than the rule. For instance, the shootings that Chuck Todd named before this last one, the Charleston AME Church, the El Paso Walmart, the Tree of Life Synagogue, those are three of the previous five mass shootings to be driven by racism, according to the Violence Project database. But the other two were perpetrated by African-American shooters against A, white police officers in Dallas, and B, a New Jersey kosher market. If you were to go back to 2015, the year of the Mother Emanuel Baptist shooting, you will find the four shootings that Todd named as fueled by white supremacy. But you'll also find a 2021 shooting fueled by a workplace dispute. We know overnight in Indianapolis, a male gunman opened fire both outside and inside a Federal Express facility. He killed eight people, injured several others, and then killed himself. A 2019 shooting by a disgruntled city employee. Tonight, our hearts go out to Virginia Beach, Virginia, where police say a city employee opened fire in a municipal building and took at least 11 lives. Actually, 12. A shooting fueled by anti-Christian sentiment, which was deadly than every other shooting we've mentioned. This time, the killer and his gun entered a small church in a small town in Texas. And many more. A decade ago, the dominant narrative was of killers inspired by Muslim extremism, like the army major at Fort Hood or this one. Fox 11 in Los Angeles now reporting 12 people confirmed dead in San Bernardino in yet another mass shooting. Now, last year, a young Muslim man killed 10 in a supermarket in Boulder, Colorado. The killing was not classified as an act of terrorism, and there indeed is no evidence for a religious motivation in that case. In 2019, when a white shooter in a nightlife district in Dayton, Ohio, killed nine people, six of them black, investigators say that whatever hate and mental illness were at play, a specifically racist motivation wasn't among them. One infamous mass killing that the media seemed to have gotten wrong was the Pulse nightclub shooting. Portrayed as an attack on the LGBT community, which it was, the evidence is that that venue was chosen just because of the two Orlando nightclubs that featured prominently in the shooter's Google search, Pulse was the one that had less security. If anything, that shooting should be remembered as the largest mass shooting of Hispanics, 36 of the 49 victims. We actually often mistake the reasons behind shootings, though with the manifestos left behind, there is no mistaking that hate. Still, I think there is a problem with identifying the reasoning of the killer as an explanation for the killing, and not just because we often get it wrong. Mass shootings as a phenomenon are on a steady upward trajectory, but the motives change all the time. Chuck Todd stood next to a graphic of four specific shootings and painted a narrative, this one about white supremacy. But you can also do that standing next to a graphic of three or four or seven mass shootings and say, this is a problem of misogyny or of sexual frustration or of marital discord, workplace hostility, bullying, or more commonly mental illness. I would in fact surmise that to some extent mental illness is a factor in every mass shooting.
But I say with certainty that what is at play in every single mass shooting is guns. Of course it's guns. And that's why I despair a little bit when Chuck Todd asks his experts to look at what seems to be an intractable problem with so many strands to pull apart. We have a toxic stew here. White supremacy ideology that's spreading. Easy access to guns. Permissive internet culture that that almost uh, encourages uh, sharing of this uh, far-right ideology. Where do we start? You start with guns. You end with guns. The permissive internet is so far gone as to be almost a background condition or a kudzu-like, unplacable irritant. The specific ideology that is for law enforcement to fight and monitor, but to stop mass shootings, you have to address the mass use of firearms. And I would have said it before, let me reiterate it, you could ban the AR-15. This rifle and like models are present in a disproportionate number of mass shootings. Gunmen are drawn to them. Apart from having unique ability to do a tremendous amount of damage to bodily tissue in a short amount of time from a great distance, these specific firearms have an almost totemic pull on mass shooters. This gunman's manifesto, which as you've heard runs 180 pages, devotes 98 of those pages to the firearms and tactical gear he's using. He loves his AR-15 variant. He addresses it in a Q&A format. Why is he using it? Question, why did you choose firearms? Answer, because they work. There are very few weapons that are easier to use and more effective at killing than firearms, especially the Bushmaster XM-15 I will be using. He even says that he wants debate about gun laws in the wake of his murders. Now, I'm not letting such people set an agenda, nor do I take his words at face value. Shitposting is a common tactic in manifesto propaganda. But it is so clear that the firepower at hand is a major determinant in body count. Also, I did notice this looking at the data. As the death rate goes up, not the casualty count, the death, the number of deaths in a shooting goes up in the Violence Project's database, the prevalence of body gear and armor goes up with it. Indeed, this shooter took incoming fire and continued on killing others because he was wearing body armor. And I haven't come across a great explanation of why body armor is privately available. So we debate endlessly and fruitlessly how to combat the latest variation on the deadly trend. And most of us agree that bad people are going to do bad things and there's not much we could do to stop it. But the evidence is clear that the less deadly the bad people's arms are, the less deadly the bad people's acts will be. And while there's also no eradicating hate from all our hearts or mental illness from all our minds, we at least recognize that those are some of the causes of the carnage. But we also, and by we I mean the supposedly sane and loving ones, we also ourselves act a bit cruelly and with a dollop of mental deficiency when we put all the blame on the hateful and the ill and none on ourselves. We could do something about this problem. We choose not to, other than occupy ourselves by despairing over the wrong things. And that's it for Saturday's show. Corey War is the assistant producer. Joel Patterson is the senior producer. And as always, Michelle Pesca is the chairman of Peachfish Productions Crime Commission. Oomperu, which I don't, for some reason, I usually reserve for the weekdays. Maybe I should anyway. I'll give it to you bonus Saturday. Oomperu, Oomperu, Jeeperu, Duperu. Thanks for listening. Talk to you Monday.